Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Usually attributed to Balzac is the observation that behind every great fortune is a great crime. In this day and age, it might also be paraphrased to say that behind every great financial crime is a great bank. In the case of many such crimes in the 20th and 21st century, lies Deutsche Bank. In its efforts to grow, it did away with all traditional ideas of risk management. In its pursuit of fees and earnings and profits, bank executives got into business with some of the world's most shady and financially needy characters. Russian oligarchs, the Trumps, the Kushners, the Mercers, Vladimir Putin, and many other oligarchs are among their customers. It got involved with other banks in Germany, Moscow, Cyprus, and Moldavia. Money laundering, real estate deals, hedge funds, indictments, bankruptcies, suicides, and a cast of characters that sometimes feels more like the bar scene in the original Star Wars. Trying to help us understand this and pull it all together in an overarching narrative is our guest, David Enrich. David is the finance editor at the New York Times. He was previously a reporter and editor at the Wall Street Journal. He has won numerous journalism awards. And his new book is Dark Towers, Deutsche Bank, Donald Trump, and an Epic Tale of Destruction. David, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You know, we're, we're fascinated by this story because of Trump, and that drives part of the narrative. But the fact of the matter is that the story of Deutsche Bank, the people that they've been involved with, their history since the late 19th century, is a fascinating story unto itself. Talk a little about that. Yeah, well, first of all, I agree with what you just said. And it's it's sometimes nice. We, I've spent so much time in the past couple of weeks talking about the Trump situation, which is very interesting itself. But there's much more to this story. Um, so Deutsche Bank was founded in 1870. This is its 150th birthday. So happy birthday, Deutsche Bank. Um, and it, its original purpose was to serve as a bank for at the dawn of the industrial age for big German companies that were trying to spread their wings internationally. And for you know for several decades, it did that quite well. It helped the the giant German industrial conglomerate Siemens, for example, um, become a household name all over the world. And But by the time the Nazis came to power in Germany in the 1930s, Deutsche Bank had really changed. And the Nazis used Deutsche Bank, and Deutsche Bank used the Nazis to – they basically became intertwined with each other. And it, Deutsche Bank helped finance concentration camps. It helped finance uh, the manufacture of poison gas. It helped take over Jewish-run businesses all over Europe and eliminate Jews from those companies. It, you know, it even took gold that the Nazis had extracted from the teeth of Jews and helped the Nazis sell it on international markets to, so that they could have money to wage war all over the world. And Deutsche, I mean, Deutsche Bank became so synonymous with German military aggression that in the, the classic movie Casablanca, there's a scene where Deutsche Bank, you know, tries to get into Rick's bar, Rick's cafe, and Rick bounces him out and kind of notes that the, the Deutsche Bank guy is lucky his money is even good at the bar. So this is a bank that even back in the 1940s was known worldwide as a real force for destruction. And that reputation only deepened in the, in the over the past few decades when Deutsche Bank decided that it no longer was content being this primarily German lender to companies in Germany and Europe, but that it wanted to get big on Wall Street. And that set the stage for uh, an era of recklessness and destruction 
the likes of which I don't think we have ever seen before. Not only recklessness and destruction, but also of death with the, the chairman of the bank being assassinated back in 1989. Your story begins with a suicide. There's another suicide that, that comes later. There's a lot of death involved in this as well. Yeah, it's kind of a grim story at times. I mean, a lot of people end up dying, and it's which is sad and upsetting, but it also shows, I think, You know, one of the things I've been covering banking and finance for, I don't know, 15, 16 years now. And it's very and I think the public in general kind of hears a lot about how bad banks are and they're involved in all these scandals and they're ripping people off. And we kind of stop listening after a while because we've heard this story before. And one of the things I tried to do in this book and one of the things I learned while reporting this book is that there's such a human element to some of this in a way that I hadn't really expected to find. It's not just like customers lose their homes, which is awful, but it's a story we've all heard before. The And there's a lot of, there are a number of people at Deutsche Bank who were really driven to despair by what they were seeing inside of the bank. And, you know, some people paid with their lives. And it really stems from, and and this goes back to the history, which is why I'm glad we talked a little about that, the culture of the bank from from those Nazi days right on up until till the present, really, the culture of the bank was such that it just fed into this kind of activity. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I mean, the, the, what happened during the Nazi era was, I think, kind of evil on uh, in a universe unto itself, in a way. And I think that in the decades between World War II and maybe the 1980s, Deutsche Bank actually was pretty humbled by the crimes and the genocide that it had been involved in and had supported. And they kind of tried to turn over a new leaf and I think largely were successful. The bank was a leading force for European reconstruction and unification after the war and was a leading advocate of forgiving third world debts and things like that. Um, but it was, in, it was in the 1980s and 1990s that the bank decided that it wasn't nearly profitable enough and that it wanted to get big on Wall Street, which is where the big profits at the time were. And it, over starting in the mid-90s and really accelerating in the 2000s, Deutsche Bank and its top executives made a fateful decision to prioritize short-term profits above absolutely everything else. And so this went from a bank that had this pretty broad conception of what its mission was. They were the bank historic in from the 19 from 1950 onwards had really existed to serve not only shareholders but also its customers and its employees and the communities in which it operated. And by 2000 or 2002 that had completely shifted. And all of a sudden, the only thing that mattered was maximizing profits for shareholders and doing it very quickly. There wasn't a long-term view of this at all. It was like, we need to make as much money as possible, as quickly as possible, long-term consequences be damned. And that is the, the, you know, the, the impact of that is kind of easy to anticipate. It's that the bank started cheating. It started lying. It started taking really dangerous shortcuts and it started ripping people off. It started violating the law. And so you see this kind of ripple effect where one decision at the top of the bank, which is that we need to essentially increase profits by about 500% in a period of two or three years leads throughout this company of tens of thousands of people. It leads to everyone's incentives change and people are now rewarded for very little other than hitting these very short-term financial targets. 
And it incentivizes people to do things like manipulate markets or bribe officials to win business or launder money for wealthy Russians or others uh, to cheat on taxes, to violate sanctions and help uh, essentially help fund Iranian terrorists who are trying to kill American troops in Iraq. And so you can draw a pretty straight line, I think, between the decisions made at the top of the bank that all that matters is profit in the moment to all of these scandals and really destructive decisions that are made at kind of lower levels across the bank. And one of the people that pushed back against that in the bank really is at at the heart of your book, at the heart of the story, Bill Brokesmith. Talk a little about him. So Bill Brokesmith was, he's an American and he was, he grew up in rural Illinois. He was the son of a minister and he got into banking, and in 1995, 1996, he joined Deutsche Bank in London. And Brokesmith was very smart, and he was kind of an expert in risk management and in complicated financial products known as derivatives. And his job was to not only kind of understand how the business was operating, but he became a voice of conservatism and prudence in at a at a bank and in an industry where those were pretty rare qualities and for many years and over nearly two decades he became the person who was kind of known as mr no within the bank because he was the one who would say you know wait a second this really isn't the best decision this could have really serious long-term consequences this isn't in clients best interest things like that and as often as not, he was overruled because, again, the priority was short-term profits above all else. But he did manage to rein things in from time to time. And he was certainly someone who he had the, the ear of some of the bank's top executives, and they would listen to him. And it, so he did manage to curtail some of, some of, but not all, of the bank's most outlandish, riskiest behavior. And then in January of 2014, he is found hanging in his apartment in London. And so he he was kind of one of the first in a number of suicides at the bank that really sent shockwaves, not only through Deutsche Bank, but through the financial community in London and in the United States. And about a week after Bill Brooksmith's suicide, um, I got in touch with his son, Val, who was, and I was working in London at the time, and Val lived in London at the time. And Val was a musician and had... This kind of very difficult upbringing, um, no no background or expertise in finance, but he started trying to investigate the reasons that his dad decided to die, and one of the things he did was he managed to get into his father's personal email accounts, his Yahoo and Gmail accounts, and inside he found that over a period of a number of years, his father had been sending and receiving thousands and thousands of Deutsche Bank related emails. And so there are emails, there are PowerPoint presentations, there are board meeting minutes, there's spreadsheets, there's all sorts of stuff in there that provided a really, I think, unparalleled glimpse inside the the kind of inner sanctum of one of the world's largest and most powerful financial institutions. And Val, over a period of years, shared most of those files with me. And so that became one of the one of the kind of resources I drew on for this book. As you began to look at all of those emails and get a glimpse into what 
Deutsche Bank looked like from the inside during this period. Talk about some of the initial impressions that you started to develop and how they they fit in with rumors and stories about the bank that had been circulating, particularly around London during that same period. Yeah, so I'd been in London. This started happening in, in 2014, and I'd been in London at that point for about four years. And it, Deutsche Bank had always kind of hung over the city of London as this, you know, giant kind of dark cloud, I guess you could say. It's one of the biggest employers in London, and as, as it was in on Wall Street. And it, there are all these rumors that have been circulating about Deutsche Bank's precarious finances and its involvement in any number of scandals. And so this was an institution with a pretty bad reputation at the time, but it was kind of hard to pin down tangible details about what had actually been going on. And so as I started, but again, it was no, it did not have a good reputation institutionally, but as I started to go through some of these files that Val had extracted from his dad's email, um, it just, uh, two things became clear. One was that the level of dysfunction and recklessness and just real irresponsibility, I guess, inside the bank was far greater than I had previously realized. There, there is clear evidence of the bank and its top executives just really shirking their duties a lot and taking the easy way out and looking for shortcuts everywhere they went and just not being prudent stewards of this major global financial institution. The other thing, though, that I found was that there is a guy, Bill Brooksmith, who was at a very senior level within the bank, who for years at that point had been voicing really serious concerns about the way things were being run. And that surprised me because it's not people generally in on Wall Street and frankly, probably in the corporate world in general, do not advance by being the guy who is waving red flags and saying no and just causing a stink about things. The much easier way to get ahead is to go with the flow. And here was Bill Brooksmith, who is this kind of, by all accounts, a very cerebral, mild-mannered, nerdy guy who was playing this role of standing up to the one, the people who were making a ton of money or trying to stand up anyway. And it, and yet had maintained for a while, at least, his really high standing within the bank. And one of the things is I kind of investigated this further, and this wasn't just from the emails, but this is from me talking to, you know, dozens of current and former Deutsche Bank executives and friends and family of the Brooksman family, that um, one of the things that had happened in the final years of Bill's career is that he actually had started to be completely marginalized within the company. And he was being pushed aside because of, for a variety of reasons, but the end result was that he felt like he was just this career that he had built up over decades and that he took enormous pride in, he felt was kind of shriveling and being left to die alone. And I think that was certainly one of the things that made him, you know, he was uh, clearly had a lot of other issues going on when he committed suicide. But I think that was certainly a contributing factor. You talk about the banking industry being an industry of people. If Brokesmith was the conscience of the bank or the one most notably trying to push back, who was on the other side? Was it Joe Ackerman who was the head of the bank? Who who was really the, the big push in terms of the businesses and the decisions that Deutsche Bank had made to get into some of these nefarious businesses? 
That's a good question. And the answer to that varies over the years. So I think Joe Ackerman is probably the initial culprit in this sense. And he was the CEO of Deutsche Bank from 2002 to 2012. And he was the one who famously, or I guess infamously, had basically ordered the bank to increase its profits by about 500% in a period of a couple of years. And that led very quickly to this cha- this cultural change within the bank and kind of a, uh, a much narrower mission of what constituted success. And it was under him that the bank, that a lot of these scandals that would later really destroy the bank's reputation started to, they kind of took root. And whether that was, and Ackerman, for example, was a huge booster of the bank's businesses in Russia. And would, you know, he'd travel to Moscow a lot. He got to know Vladimir Putin. He, he was so close with Putin and the Kremlin that after he stepped down as Deutsche Bank CEO in 2012, Putin personally offered him a job working for the Kremlin. And and so it's not really, it was it's not hard to see how Ackerman's coziness with the Kremlin coupled with his orders to maximize short-term profits led to people in the Moscow office doing a lot of business with oligarchs and other wealthy Russians who were looking to launder money or whisk money out of the country secretly. And that, that was one, that's kind of one of the premier scandals that Deutsche Bank has been involved with over the years. Um, but after Ackerman stepped down, there was a succession of other executives who also really were kind of had the, they, they were kind of the id of the bank if Brooksman was the superego of the bank. And, and Anshu Jain is a leading example of that. He was the co-CEO of the bank and he was, he was the man to whom Brooksman was actually closest. And it was interesting kind of understand, trying to understand this, the personal relationships and the culture at the very top of the bank, when you've got someone like Anshu Jain, who is really kind of, he's been driven his entire career to sell, 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 and just step on the gas. And you've got Brogsmith, who is kind of, his constitution is just completely different from that. And it is interesting seeing there were times when those two would, their, their, their differences would kind of complement each other. But there are many more instances where Anshu's, and the, the people around Anshu were much more interested in, you know, just making money at all costs rather than listening to people like Brooksmith who were urging a little more caution and a little more conservatism. And this is where clients like the Trumps and the Kushners really fit into the equation, because yeah. in order to do the kind of business that they did, they needed, as you say, damaged clients. Yeah, that's right. And the bank, Deutsche Bank at the time, starting in the late 1990s, but really up through 2012, 2013, was it was trying in different parts of its businesses to get a foothold in the U.S. And this is a bank that did not have much experience in the U.S., and it was not a household name. And a lot of Americans probably had either never heard of Deutsche Bank or couldn't pronounce its name. And so how do you get clients? And because most respected businesses or wealthy families or wealthy individuals, they already have good relationships with banks because they're, you know, great great people or institutions to do business with because they don't default on their loans and they have a lot of money to invest. So Deutsche Bank had to kind of go for a second or third tier of customers, people that were not banked by the mainstream financial institutions and who were essentially off limits for one reason or another. And so along comes someone like Donald Trump, who has defaulted over and over again on his loans and stiffed his business partners and declared bankruptcy. 
And he is completely untouchable by mainstream banks because they don't want to take the risk of working with someone who might hurt them financially or hurt their reputations. And so Deutsche, and Deutsche Bank, meanwhile, is looking for the scraps left behind by their more their, their better established competitors. And so Deutsche Bank and Donald Trump become they're essentially a perfect match for each other in that regard. Were there other Donald Trump like clients that Deutsche Bank had in that period? Yeah, I mean, my favorite example, or maybe not favorite is probably the wrong <laughs> word, but I, I think the, the, the clearest example of that is Jeffrey Epstein, who um, was convicted in 2008 of sex crimes, and it was still remained banked in the United States. And J.P. Morgan had a very close relationship with him, uh, fostered by some of J.P. Morgan's top executives up until the very beginning of 2013, at which point the bank for J.P. Morgan, for a variety of reasons, realized that maybe Jeffrey Epstein, the convicted sex criminal, was not the type of client they wanted to be in bed with. And so Epstein, who had hundreds of millions of dollars and was running all sorts of schemes all over the world, needed another financial institution to fill that void. And he went right to Deutsche Bank, and Deutsche Bank was happy to become his bank. And so over the next six years or so, the bank lent him millions of dollars, and it also allowed him to open a bunch of accounts for all these different entities all over the world that he was operating. And the relationship with Deutsche Bank, between Epstein and Deutsche Bank, lasted until just very shortly before Epstein was arrested and criminally charged last summer for running a sex trafficking operation. And this is, a, again, this is, it was not, well, no one was certain Epstein would be arrested or criminally charged. It was no secret that Epstein was a really shady character. And Deutsche Bank just didn't care that much. They they were not that interested in their clients' reputations or morality. They were much more interested, in fact, I think solely interested in whether those clients would be profitable in the short term for the bank. And Epstein fit that bill. And so the bank continued working with him right up until the time that he became the most notorious person in the world. What is the nexus then between these shady clients, people like Epstein, people like Trump, the damaged goods that the Deutsche Bank uh, put together had as their clients, the nexus between that and money laundering. How did that all fit together? Well, I mean, kind of spiritually, I guess, they're, it's all born from the same thing, which is that Deutsche Bank was not interested in anything other than making money. And so that leads you to get in bed with bad clients. It leads you to break the law. It leads you to push the envelope. And so kind of from that spiritual point, every, all these other bad, evil things come out of it. I mean, in a more literal sense, though, I mean, there's a couple of ways to answer that, I guess. One is that there is considerable evidence, I think, that Jeffrey Epstein over the years was engaged in or appears to have been engaged in various money laundering activities. And I know that inside Deutsche Bank, that's something that the bank's lawyers and others have been kind of scouring their records, trying to figure out if the if Deutsche Bank either deliberately or accidentally was facilitating money laundering by Epstein. And with Trump, I mean, Trump is someone who, even at the time the bank started doing business with him in the late 1990s, had a reputation and a, a fairly well-documented reputation of having been in the vicinity professionally of organized crime 
and having and operating in an industry, the U.S. real estate industry, that is just rife with money laundering and for people overseas who are looking for a safe place to hide their assets outside of their home countries, American real estate is one of the best places to park that because the U S law does not require much transparency or disclosure about the owner of properties. And so people inside Deutsche Bank were and openly talked about the risk of doing business with Trump in view of not just his very bad credit history, but in view of the fact that he has this, has these, um, you know, has overlapped with organized crime and is in a kind of in a money laundering field, you could say. And so the million dollar question is, I guess, whether Deutsche Bank was, whether Trump was involved or his companies or his family were involved in money laundering or whether the Kushners were. And I have not seen evidence that they were, but what I have seen is, and this is from talking to people at Deutsche Bank, and there are employees at Deutsche Bank who, whose jobs were to be on the lookout for suspicious transactions that were potentially risky from a money laundering standpoint. And on a number of occasions, fairly recently, in fact, and this is as early as tw- or as late as 2015, 2016, 2017, they were seeing potentially suspicious transactions inside the Trump and Kushner accounts at Deutsche Bank. And, you know, that's, obviously a cause for alarm if you're a compliance officer who is trained to, you know, stop this kind of stuff. And sure enough, the compliance officers tried to stop it and tried to file reports with the federal government, alerting them to these potentially suspicious transactions. And they were overruled and stopped by their managers and their superiors at Deutsche Bank. But there has never been the smoking gun that really ties Trump to the money laundering, although there's an awful lot of smoke. There's an enormous amount of smoke. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely, to be 100% clear, I'm not accusing Trump of money laundering, and I have not seen evidence of him money laundering. But, you know, one of the things that I think will be really interesting over the coming months is that Deutsche Bank has been subpoenaed by uh, Democrats in Congress who are investigating Deutsche Bank and Donald Trump. And there's going to be a Supreme Court hearing, oral arguments in the Supreme Court next month, and there will be a decision probably by June that may force Deutsche Bank to hand over essentially all of its Trump files to congressional Democrats. And one of the things that these investigators are looking at or looking for is any evidence of illicit activity in the Trump and Kushner bank accounts. And they're very much on the lookout for any evidence of money laundering. And in fact, they've one of the things they've subpoenaed Deutsche Bank for are any internal records the bank has of concerns that its employees raised about potential money laundering. So this is, a, this is very much a live issue. And it, I think it's going, it'll, it kind of depends on how the Supreme Court rules. Uh, but it's, this is something that the story is far from over, I would say. And finally, what's the future of Deutsche Bank? Oh, my goodness. I have no idea. I mean, it's pretty grim, I would say. The Deutsche Bank is, they're trying to turn themselves around. They're trying to return to their historical roots as a primarily German and European bank. And they're trying to shrink and they're trying to reboot their culture. Um, but that is hard. I mean, this is, the company still has tens of thousands of employees Many of them have worked there for a long time and have been kind of indoctrinated with this culture of make money now at all costs. And 
that's it's very hard. You can't just snap your fingers and say, okay, now we're not going to do that. Now we're going to look out for our clients and our and our employees and our the communities in which we operate. It's this is a deeply embedded and very bad culture at the bank, and I think the bank's leaders are recognize this to a certain extent and are trying to figure out ways to change the culture and, and kind of change the company's reputation. But there is absolutely no guarantee that they will succeed. And in fact, if I were going to handicap the odds that they succeed, you know, it would be, I think it'd be pretty optimistic to put it at 50%. David Enrich, his book is Dark Towers, Deutsche Bank, Donald Trump, and an Epic Trail of Destruction. David, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks for having me. Thank you.